All right, let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 25. We are concluding our brief series through Psalm 25 today. We've been following David as he wrestles with some dark and disturbing times in his life. Things are out of his control. He can't change the things that are afflicting him and hurting him. And so in these dark days, David lifts up his soul to God for help, and he finds it. And so we have been following David and looking to see how it actually is that in the grip of chaos, we can discover and even rediscover the grace of Christ. Today, we're Psalm 25, verses 16 through 22. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all of my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we trust. God, we trust that the word that you have given us is the word that you will use to teach us, to change us to cause us to grow and become more like our Savior. We pray, God, that as you work in us, you're not just doing so individually, but in all of us collectively as well, that the, the faith that we share, the Savior that we confess, would move us to be a people who move together in unity and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A lot of promises in scripture. Most of them are good, right? There are some promises, there are some promises that aren't as, uh, as fun, like uh, when Jesus promises, uh, in the world, you're going to have trouble. Like, that's a promise, right? That's a promise that he made. You're, you are going to have tribulation. So not all the promises feel good. But even when you get one like that, even when you get the promise like, hey, you know what? In the world, it's going to be tough. And it's not only going to be tough, it's going to be even harder for you as a Christian. The pain point for you is going to be more significant when you suffer because of your faith, because you will have greater sensitivity to the realities of sin and death and evil and perversion and wickedness and your own culpability uh, in, in the midst of your own guilt. Like the afflictions that you suffer in life as a Christian are intensified because of your faith. So you will experience trouble, but that's not all that he says. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So let's make it clear. Jesus is saying, yes, you are going to have trouble in the world where I've sent you, but in me you will have peace even when your circumstances are difficult or frustrating or oppressive and suffocating, even in the midst of things that are well outside of your control, I will give you peace that surpasses comprehension. 
that transcends your circumstances. So the promises of God are all yes and amen in Jesus. And that's really where we're going with this, right? David finds himself in the midst of suffocating, near paralyzing circumstances. And he doesn't lay out all of them for us. We just kind of know in principle, because we know the history of David, maybe what's going on. But what we see is David in the midst of this kind of, these kind of dark days, he reaches out for help. The prayer of deliverance is offered. And he finds it. He experiences it. And so we're doing the same thing, and we're going to wrap this up. In fact, the principle that I want us to see today is not just a principle for these verses. It really does encapsulate uh, the, entire, the entire psalm, how we find the grace of Christ in the grip of chaos. And the principle is this. Deliverance from our darkest days comes when we dwell with Christ and his church. That's where it's experienced. Deliverance from our darkest days comes when we dwell. That's an important word, so hang on to that. When we dwell with Christ and his church. So here's what we're going to do. The first part of our time together, I want us to focus on the distress of dark days, right? What are the things, and these are, some of these are highlighted here in this part of Psalm 25. What are those, those points of pain and danger that accompany our dark days, the distress of dark days? And then secondly, Deliverance, the deliverance from dark days. We're going to look at that secondly, OK? So first, the distress of dark days. There are a number of distressing realities, of dangerous realities that come into our lives when we are going through difficulty, affliction, pain, suffering. And one of them is isolation. Isolation, super common. Look at verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, because I am lonely and afflicted, lonely and afflicted. Isolation. I know some of us like the concept of isolation. Some of us even will joke about uh, like the idea of being trapped on a desert island all by ourselves because you know we like being alone more than we like being around people. Because as introverts, we tend to be refreshed, right? We're refreshed in isolation. And being around people is taxing. It, 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 it takes it out of us, even if we understand that it's it's good for us. So some of us make that joke like, oh, I would I would love to be isolated and alone. But there's a difference between being an introvert. There's a difference between even enjoying your alone time and being isolated. There's a difference. And listen, I know, like, I do like to be alone uh, for a variety of, of, of reasons. I, it's just, it's easier for me. I'm socially awkward. You know, I feel weird around people. I still, I'm 51 or whatever. I still feel weird and awkward around people. And you're like, yeah, of course you do. Look at you. But I just do. I just feel, I feel weird and awkward. So I like to be alone. But what we're talking about here is not a preference and not how we are recharged. We're talking about the danger in dark days, this tendency that we have to be isolated lonely and afflicted. Because here's the thing. In dark days, you will for sure feel alone, even if you're not. right? Because if, if you're in the dark and you can't see anybody, if somebody is right next to you, you still feel alone, right? It's kind of hard to tell that people are there. And, and maybe, you know, maybe there are people that are around. But for one reason or another, when our pain becomes oppressive, it just oftentimes feels like we're the only one going through this. 
which is never true, but it feels that way, oftentimes because we aren't seeing into the lives of other people, so we can feel alone. And then on the other hand, there are times in dark days when we actually are alone, we actually are isolated. And maybe that's because, maybe that's because we've burned all of our bridges and run off all of our friends. Sometimes we bring it on ourselves. Sometimes it's just situational. We just happen to be in a, in a circumstance that we didn't plan for, didn't create, and we just don't have anyone that we can reach out to. That's rarer. That's a lot more rare. Most of the time, when we wind up isolated in dark days, not all the time, but most of the time, I believe it's because we choose it. We choose to isolate. We choose to be alone. We choose to take it on ourselves. And we do this for a bunch of different reasons, right? And it's not because you think, it's not because you think you're, a, you're a hero or a tough guy or an independent woman. Like, I could just do all these things. We just, so many of us think I could just do, like I'm Indiana Jones, and I'm just going to go out on my own, but not steal indigenous people's treasures. Well, just like, but the, the idea that you're, a, you're an adventurer, and you're going to go out, and you're going to be your Han Solo. Or, hey, same guy. Anyway, the point is, is that like, we don't just fancy ourselves strong and independent and all of that. Oftentimes, the reason that we choose to isolate is because of shame or pain. It's like shame or pain. It's like, it's like one or the other. It's like we are embarrassed. Sometimes when you're going through tough times, you're embarrassed. It's like, oh, I don't want people knowing my business. And it's like it's so, it feels like it's too much or it's intrusive. And they're going to see the real me or they're going to see the, the weak me. And so we, we retreat because of that. And, and maybe it's not shame or embarrassment. Maybe it's just the pain. The pain is so hard. It's so intense. You, you don't feel like sharing it or reliving it, thinking that it will compound or intensify the agony. When in reality, when we share it, it actually tends to alleviate some of the burden. We will sometimes just choose it. And here's the thing. It's not smart. Isolating ourselves in dark days is not just foolish. It's dumb. It is dangerous. It is reckless. Now, we may not be thinking intentionally, like, I'm going to isolate myself, but we have to guard ourselves because this tendency is real. In those difficult, challenging days of affliction, not to isolate ourselves, listen to Proverbs 18.1. Just listen. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he breaks out against all sound judgment. It's not as if we're going to say, like, I don't want sound judgment, therefore I'm going to go isolate myself. What happens is, is we isolate ourselves out of either maybe fear, right, maybe pain, maybe shame, whatever it is. We isolate ourselves, and in doing so, we are cutting off wisdom and input. We're, we're, we're cutting off the community. We're, we're cutting off people that can be a real help. And so what happens is we begin to lose touch with sound judgment. We're only left with our own thoughts, which can bring about self-destruction. So yes, isolation is a real danger. It is a distress in the dark days that we need deliverance from, which is why David's asking for help on this point. Secondly, heartache. Heartache is a true distress of soul in dark days. See verse 17? The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. And I know heartache, to some of us, sounds weak, sounds pathetic. Heartache. Boo-hoo. Are you sad? 
So you're a little sad right now. Is that the problem? You're a little sad. Everybody's sad. Get over it. Like that's, that's some of us, some of us like me, I tell that stuff to myself. I would never say that to anybody else, right? I, but I, I would, and I wouldn't even think it. Well, sometimes I would think it. But most of the time, I wouldn't even think it. But on myself, it's, been, it's always been like, what are you going to cry? Are you going to cry about it? Are you going to be sad? What's wrong with that? Sadness is weakness. Just get on. You can't do anything about it. Like, let's move forward. Heartache isn't just sadness. Heartache is grief. It's not self-pity and navel-gazing. It's mourning. It's what Richard Baxter called overmuch sorrow. It's a, it's a pervasive and restless sadness. And you want to mock it as something light. I want to dismiss it as no big deal. But if this kind of heartbreak, heartache, if this is such a small thing, then why does God spend so much time talking about it in the Bible? Why does God address brokenheartedness again and again in a variety of ways in Scripture? In Psalm 34, verse 8, it says that God is close to the brokenhearted. In Psalm 147, verse 3, it says God heals the brokenhearted. How many times do we have to read that God cares about our burdens and tells us, bring your burdens to me? Bring your anxieties to me, your fears, even your tears, God will address all of it. He cares. A broken heart, brokenheartedness, it's a significant distress of soul. If it isn't such a big deal, then why would God himself say that a part of the gospel is healing our broken hearts? Listen to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 picked up again in Luke 4 by Jesus himself when he says, this is about me and what I've come to do. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Yes, these are speaking of spiritual realities of which brokenheartedness is right there in the middle. We know this, right? God wants our heart. He doesn't just want our obedience, right? Our, our external obedience. He wants a heart that leads to obedience, right? He wants the heart, and therefore he cares about the condition of our hearts. And when our hearts are grieving and when they are being crushed by the, the difficulty of life in a, in a broken world, God cares. See, our hearts break because we live in a broken world. The world is broken. It needs to be healed, and so do our hearts. And this kind of sadness, kind of spiritual sadness, this kind of deep grief about life, right? it's not dying in a world that is broken that makes life hard. It's living life in a world that is broken that is hard and when it's dark days, when the days are dark, when you don't see as many of God's good gifts and kindnesses in your circumstances, and when it's just the valley of the shadow of death, that's where heartache thrives. The distress of isolation is real. The distress of heartache is real. There is the distress of guilt Verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. 
It hurts when people sin against you, right? It's not fun. I remember uh, when I was a little kid, uh, somebody broke into our house and stole my dad's rifle and our, our TV in the basement. We were all there. We were all sleeping at night. It was spooky, you know? It's spooky. I woke up and I felt the vibe. I was like, ooh, well, that's weird. I have no reason. I have no I was just like, that's a weird vibe. When I went downstairs and my mom and dad are standing there like, TV's gone. Gun is gone. <laughs> I was like, hanging right there. And uh, then I found out who it was. It was, uh, it was my brother's friend, my half-brother's friend, just some guy in the neighborhood. And we were like, ah, what a dummy. You know, you get over it. It's different when my brother, who's now passed away, it's different when he steals my mom's engagement ring and jewelry and hawks it to get high. That hurts more, right? Because you know them. When you love somebody and you care about somebody and you're, you're, they're, they're a part of your life and your family, when they sin against you, oh, man, that hurts. But our own sin and our own guilt troubles us differently and more deeply, if we're honest. Our own sin hits different. It, it impacts. It pierces in a different kind of a way. And so it's a different kind of a burden that we are aware of. And yes, we have this confidence that God forgives us of our sins because of Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord. He, he, because Christ has made an atonement for sins through his death on the cross, we know that God does not count our sins against us. But we still feel them. We still commit them. They stay with us, and the impact and the effect of our sin can wreak havoc in our lives. And so there can be a sense of guilt that just won't go away. In fact, you read, you read passages of Scripture where you can see believers struggling with the sensitivity of their sins and what it feels like, sometimes when they go for periods of time without confessing it, sometimes when they just haven't found peace yet. For example, Psalm 32 David said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's what he's like. Yes, that's, that's the sweet spot. He said, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So there's a period of time, even though his sins are forgiven, he's not experiencing the relief that comes with that. Then he confesses. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The guilt that we can still feel, even though we stand before God blameless and pure and beautiful and lovely without blemish at all, the guilt that we can still experience can distress us. Our sin can be overwhelming. And the, and the need, if you perceive the, the, the reality of your sin, if you understand like, what it means that our sin is not just an offense to God, but it is a reason that Christ died for us. When you begin to see that, Spurgeon says, we begin to pray like Psalm 25. Spurgeon said this, the cry of a soul, this here, is the cry of a soul more sick of sin than pain. 
and would sooner be forgiven than healed. In other words, it's like we get to the point where you recognize, like, wow, my circumstances are bad. They're, they're, they're dark, and, and I want them fixed, and we need them fixed. But you know what? The, the, the deeper, more, more serious issue that needs to be addressed is spiritual in nature. And I, I need to find and experience uh, the, the cleansing of a conscience and, 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 and the forgiveness of sins and, and the freedom from guilt that I can only find in God. So we make our appeal of this particular distress, isolation, heartache, and guilt, and enemies, Enemies, you see verse 19, it says, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. What do we mean by enemies? I'll give you my definition for today, okay? I will define enemies like this. An enemy is anyone or anything that is seeking your ruin. That's it. Anyone or anything that seeks your ruin. I don't care who it is or what it is, and I'm not interested in what their motivation is. They could have a good motivation. Just trying to help. If it is in reality going to ruin you, they are functioning as an enemy. So it can be a person. It can be a principle. It can be family. It can be a true foe, right? An enemy that, that does intend to do you harm. It can be social. It can be political or personal. It can be the devil. It can be the world. And sometimes it can just be you. Sometimes we genuinely are our own worst enemies. David says, how many are my enemies? There are so many. God, you know them all. Lord, Lord, to take notice of them, see them, and help me, and overcome my enemies. Remember Jesus' promise. Like, listen, I'm going to give, I'm, I'm giving you peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble. But don't worry, I've overcome the world. I know the enemies. I have conquered the enemies, all of them so that you can have the peace and the grace that you need in the midst of these days. Let me give you a, a, a principle, right? Because most, most people will experience a personal enemy here and there, but we all experience principal enemies all the time. And they take different shapes, right? It can be, a, it can be political, social, moral. I just want to give you one because it highlights how they work, and that would be pornography. Pornography is an enemy of humanity, not just the church. And it's weird because, like, even though God's word makes it very clear how we ought to think about such things, even science is on our side on this. Pornography is bad for the people who make it and the people who consume it. It's destroying marriages, not just because you're not supposed to see it, it's because it rewires your brain and your heart to thinking and feeling in different ways about people in different ways. Yes, we're talking about drug abuse and human trafficking and all kinds of, of terrible treatment of people, but it's also the ongoing rewiring of how we think about people made in the image of God. And even though science acknowledges like this is not good for us at all, everybody's like fine with it. No, no big deal. What are you going to do? Freedom. And even in the church, like, we're like, no, like, hey, don't look at that stuff. It's, it's not good for you. It's bad for you. But it just comes with it. We're just kind of used to it now because we live in such a highly sexualized pornographic culture. It's just, it just is. It's an enemy that we need to be careful with. 
And these enemies are all over. And when you're going through dark days, those enemies sometimes align and combine forces in unique ways to wreak havoc. So we identify these dangers, these distresses. And what do we do? We do what David does. We need to do what David does. That is, we go to the Lord on account of the distress and the danger. You see verse 20? Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. And essentially, this is like going back to 16, right? Uh, turn to me and be gracious to me. Lord, turn to me. He says this a bunch of times. Consider this about me. Consider this. In other words, see, notice, pay attention, right? And then act. And what is he praying for? He's saying, God, in all of the darkness, in all of the distresses, I need you to fundamentally not change my circumstances, but guard my heart. Guard my soul. Guard my soul. Deliver me in that way. Let me not be put to shame. Though I am hunted down or persecuted or suffering, it can be illness, it can be anything. In, in the midst of all of this, Lord, would you deliver my soul? May integrity and uprightness preserve me as I wait for you. See, deliverance from our darkest days comes when we dwell with Christ and the church. How does that work? Well, let me give you the, the big picture, and then I want to talk through it a little bit. The big picture we see in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. Here, Paul says, and because of him, that is God the Father, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. That means you're united to Jesus, bound up with him. Your life is hidden in Christ. You are the child of God now, the adopted child. You, you, you are a, a son or a daughter forever, justified, forgiven, reconciled, all of it. So because of God the Father, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is a way of saying those of you who have been united to Jesus, those of you who believe, Jesus is everything to you. He is everything. Everything that ultimately matters. It, it, it's okay when people say, Jesus is the answer to all of our problems. Okay, unless it's a math problem, right? <laughs> like there, there, there are certain things that Jesus doesn't actually answer. Like there are very specific. But if we're talking broadly, yes, Jesus is the answer to our greatest problems, the help and the hope to our deepest needs. Jesus is to us something that he isn't to the world because we see him for who he is and we believe. So he is wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And isn't all of that addressing the very needs and pain points in our dark days? We are confused and ignorant. We need wisdom. We have it in Jesus. We are weak and frail. We need to be strengthened and, and sanctified. We need it all. We are sinful still, but we need, we need, we need righteousness and Redemption, and we have it all in Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is the answer, big picture, but how does it work? How does it really work, especially if we're getting back to this principle, right? This one principle I want us to get, which I think is taught throughout the whole Psalm 25. Deliverance from our darkest days comes when we dwell with Christ and his church. How does this work? We'll look at Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 to get the answer. Hebrews 10. 19 through 25. You can just listen. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." This is how we experience, rediscover the grace of God in the grip of chaos. It's all here. Author of Hebrews talks about these holy places. We have confidence to enter into the holy places. He's referring to the tabernacle and the temple. And this is where God's people would gather together for worship and fellowship. But there is the courtyard, right? But then there is a structure in the middle, right? And it's a building. It essentially has, has two compartments. And, and this building can only be entered into by priests, right? So regular folk, we're not going in there. You got to be a priest to go into the holy place, which is the first chamber. And then there's this thick curtain that separates the large first chamber from the second chamber. And that second chamber is called the holy of holies, right? So you've got the holy places, the holy place and the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, you have the, the Ark of the Covenant. And that is where the presence of God was said to dwell. So there, not just priests, but only a high priest could go into the holy of holies. And there he would spring blood onto that altar. He would sprinkle blood onto that ark. And that would be the symbol of the satisfaction of God's justice through the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins in Israel. And the author of Hebrews says, we as believers all have confidence to walk into the holy places where God dwells, dwells. We walk in. We have the freedom to walk in, to get close. We no longer need a high priest to intercede for us, to be our advocate, to be our mediator, because Jesus Christ himself is the sacrifice and the high priest. And he has made us all priests, we're told. We are all priests. We all have equal access to God. We can walk into his presence where he dwells, and we can dwell with him. In fact, Jesus is not just the priest. He's not just the sacrifice. He's the temple. And we dwell in him now and forever, free, full access to have communion with our Savior. That's where we find grace. That's where we find help. Through the blood of Christ, we have communion with him. And this is done by faith, right? You don't earn it by virtue of doing anything. It was paid for by Christ, and we enter into it by faith. Just to make this point a little more clear, we'll go back here to Hebrews chapter 10, where it says in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast uh, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful Jesus redeems. And at the point at which we believe that, we trust him. Our guilt is taken away. 
Our sins are atoned for. We are declared to be priests in the kingdom of God. We are the child of God. We can approach him with confidence, boldness, and a freedom that cannot be taken away. Deliverance from our dark days comes as we learn to dwell with Christ by faith, where we experience pardon, pardon for our sins, so our guilt no longer overwhelms us, and in whom we have real and needed community. The church, if you go back to Hebrews 10, it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's the answer to isolation and loneliness is that in saving us from sin and death, we are saved into a kingdom that is spiritual, but we, we see it and we experience it really in the local church. We are made a part of a community of faith where we are supposed to actually exhort, encourage, correct even one another. We're supposed to be connected relationally. This is how God does it. This is how God strengthens you and ultimately lifts you up above your dark days as you dwell with Christ and with his church. You go solo, you're not going to experience the grace that you need. But if you... But if you will dwell with Christ in the church, there you find it. And let me just want to put a finer point on this as, as, we, as we wrap this up. Deliverance from dark days comes when we dwell, dwell, right? That's the word, dwell with Christ and his church. All right, dwelling. To dwell with Christ is to stay with him. It is to live somewhere. To dwell with Christ, Jesus puts it this way in John 15, it's to abide. To abide. In fact, there's, there's some homework. I don't give out lots of homework. I don't have the authority to do it. I'll pretend that I do for now. I'm giving you all homework. I'd like you to spend the week, just a little bit each day, reading and meditating on Psalm 15. Verses 1 through 17, where Jesus talks about the need to abide in him. To dwell with Christ is to abide in him. It means to stay with him. It means to believe him. It means to trust him, to pray to him. It means to love him. It means, yes, to obey him. It, it means to, to stay vitally, experientially connected by faith where we are depending upon him and walking with him. Dwell with Christ, and you must dwell with his church. And I'm not saying it has to be any one particular church. I'm certainly not saying that Redeemer is the only church or the best church or anything like that. But we are made for the communion of the saints. We are made for fellowship. We need it, and it needs us. To dwell with the church means something more than just coming to a service. It also means more than just serving the church through a particular ministry. To dwell with the church is to stay together, to live together. 
popular ways of saying it, to do life together, right? To do life together. We come up with new ways to say it because we tend to distance ourselves over time from the concept. It's just easier. We're busy. We got our own things going on. You know, prioritize the, 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 the family, like the nuclear family, our little family, right? We kind of prioritize that. And it's just easy to distance ourselves from the congregation, from what we need, which is fellowship, right? It's, 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 it's called the, the communion of the saints for a reason. We're supposed to be actually together, communing, talking, sharing, loving, serving. If you want to experience the grace of God in the grip of chaos, then that you, you have to dwell with Christ and with his church where there's mutual care and edification built into the very nature of what we are. It's not just about what we do. It's what we are. We are brothers and sisters in the faith, in Christ. And I can, I can say, you know, I understand more now. And some of you understand this about me, if you know my story. I understand now more than ever before how necessary it is to be in the midst of the communion of the saints, to have brothers and sisters that I need in my life. We are not meant to go alone. We are not meant to bear our burdens alone. We are meant to share them. We are meant to help and serve each other. And, and you need to understand, right, that as much as you need the saints, the saints need you, right? This is always going to go both ways. So let's go back to these two promises. Um, when Jesus says, in the world, you're going to have trouble, he is saying, I promise you're going to have dark days where life is hard and painful and out of your control and there's not much you can do about it. You'll be called to suffer well. Dark days will come. They come to everybody. I can't tell you how many times. I, I usually, I usually, I oftentimes know what's going on in so many of your lives because we're all pretty open. We talk about stuff. But I, I can't tell you how often. It's, the, it's all the time, more than weekly, generally, where somebody will come up to me and say, you know what? Uh, I'm going through this thing right now, or we're experiencing this, and it's like dark days, but no one would know by looking at the outside, because everything, everything looks fine. Dark days are a guarantee, but so is deliverance for the Christian. So is strength. Dark days are promised, but so is grace, so is peace. And the God who is sovereign over your circumstances is also the God who is with you in the midst of them, who will support you and strengthen you and lead you through the valley of the shadow of death by the light of his word in the company of his people. My prayer is that as we experience trial and tribulation, that we will do so holding fast to our Savior as we link arms together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would strengthen us. Lord, give peace to those who need it. Give passion to those who perhaps have grown complacent. If we're callous, Lord, make us sensitive. If we're apathetic, Lord, would you, would you make us hungry and full of conviction, 
Lord, we, we want to be made whole, holy, human, made in your image. And we know that that restoration process is your work of sanctification by your spirit, whereby we begin to look more and more like your son. So God, we pray that that is happening. We ask, Lord, that if there is anyone in our midst who has not yet believed this gospel, who has not yet trusted in the Jesus who saves, who died, who rose again, God, we pray that that today would be the, the day of salvation for them, that conviction would give way to repentance and a joyful embrace of Jesus as Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.